Hello, everyone. Mr. Roger Dewan is a vice president for IHS Market Energy and heads a dedicated research team that provides integrated energy advice to the financial sector. He has over 25 years of experience in advising financial institutions on strategies in the oil and gas markets, energy trends and companies strategy with a renewed focus on the capital dimension of the energy transition. Mr. Dewan leads a team of analysts and strategists to advise over 150 asset managers, hedge funds and private equity firms by providing customised analysis on market developments for oil, gas, power and renewables, with a focus on spending, company strategies and capital markets developments. Recently, his work has focused on the risks of underinvestment for oil during the energy transition, the capital transition challenges that energy systems face in the next decade, but also all current energy geopolitical questions facing oil, gas and the manufacturing of renewables. And there are plenty of those. Mr. Duan holds a Bachelor of Arts from the Sorbonne and Master's Degrees from the Institut d'Etudes Politiques of Paris, and the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. So, Roger, a very, very warm welcome to the Alatea podcast. Thank you very much for this introduction. Uh, thank you, Stephen, for inviting me today. And thank you for the uh, uh, Alatea Foundation to, uh, to have me. Oh, not at all. You're very, very welcome. Um, first of all, I'd like to start by Hearing your thoughts on the conflict in Ukraine, as Western powers increase their sanctions on Russia, do you believe Russian oil, gas and coal can be replaced in such countries? And how does this conflict change your core assumptions about energy supply and demand? Yeah, um, I think this conflict changed fundamentally all our thoughts about oil and gas uh, markets. Um, Russia has been wired into European energy systems for some time. And Russia represents about 35% or 40% of the energy that uh, uh, Europe imports. This is, uh, I would say, one of the main global energy corridors of the world. It's probably the most important one, uh, hardwired through pipelines uh, for oil, for gas, uh, for uh, also imports of coal. Um, so, how to unwire Europe in the next phase uh, is one of the key geopolitical question, energy question of our times. And it changes all the assumption all of us had about global energy systems for the past 30 years. That was a given. And if you need to unwire it and rewire the world around uh, Europe bypassing Russia for its energy need, you're changing your energy map in a fundamental way. And, and all at a very short notice. Historically, Europe has also been a major importer of Russian gas and oil and diesel. So uh, if Russian ships and barges are banned from EU ports, what will happen to the refined products trade? Will, will Europe need to implement diesel rationing, do you think, also in the short term? Yeah, so your question is more broadly so that Let's focus on the hard wiring on the oil side, and it has two components, one of crude oil and one of product. And the crude oil one uh, is, in a way, the more fungible one. So I think Europe will focus first in removing crude Russian crude oil from its refineries before banning and um, 
uh, banning the imports of refined product and what I would call unfinished product that its refineries needs. Uh, so far, I think this is where we're going towards, which is a, a ban on crude oil, later maybe on product. But yes, I think Europe is vulnerable for diesel and certain markets will be separated from the global markets if they cannot import Russian material and we'll have shortages and we will need to find other ways to move things around. Uh, from a market perspective, we're going to see dislocation in some market for sure, and European products are uh, top on the list. Most recently, Russia says it stopped supplying gas to Poland and Bulgaria, although I don't know if it's been confirmed about Bulgaria. In terms of gas supply, do you believe Russia might switch off its gas delivery to all of Europe? And if so, I mean, why would they? Because they'd be shooting themselves in a financial foot, wouldn't they? Exactly. So we're having this very complicated dance right now about who can uh, not choose the other, correct, between Russia and Europe. But yeah. you're right. You're looking at it from both ways. One is Russian gas is hardwired into its European customers. So if you don't have customers, you don't have the need for that gas and you need to shut down the fields. So it's not like you can redirect it any other places. It's, it's a pipeline system uh, which takes uh, gas from the fields to the consumers. So if you're cutting off your consumers, you're cutting off your supply. Um, so there is a, this, this game right now about who can uh, displace the other faster. And I think Europe is committed now to remove about half of R Russian gas coming into Europe in the next three years. The question is, is Russia willing to remove it? It's that 50% faster than the Europeans are uh, capable of doing it. And that's the dance we're going to see in the next two, three years. But it would reinforce Europe goal to disconnect from uh, Russia because clearly Russia it's using its energy for a geopolitical leverage and that is unacceptable for the European uh, economies. Yeah, of course it is. Uh, I mean, Germany uh, has been meeting uh, certainly on Wednesday with her EU partners because they must be, uh, and I think it's about the ruble, isn't it? It's about paying for gas and oil in, in rubles. They must be very concerned though about the effect on the euro which is already at its lowest level uh, against the dollar since what, 2017, I work out. Uh, indeed, I mean, all of these things are uh, uh, connected. The German and the Polish gas market are completely connected and you have to consider them as one. So if you have less Russian gas in Poland, the question is, does Russia increase its supply to Germany so you can come back from the, from the back door? Or can uh, Germany okay. increase its supply of gas sometimes to impact Poland. So these systems are quite connected. Uh, I don't think it's a problem for the next six months. We're getting into the low gas demand season and it's the question here is how much we build stocks for the winter. I think it will be a much bigger problem this winter. So this is again a political game of leverage and we'll see where it goes. But it confirms if you want the general direction that this relationship is completely broken and it's about energy security now for Europe to uh, untether itself from Russia. And Germany, um, as you know, is, is looking to bolster its LNG import and storage. Yes. So how long will it take to get those facilities commissioned and up and running? And is there sufficient LNG available to make a difference to Germany's yeah. supplies? 
Yeah, uh, I think it takes it takes time. It takes it takes three to four years, and here they're gonna fast forward permitting and they have siting, etc. So at least three years. Um, so it doesn't solve your problem now. What it does, it addresses your broader energy security in the future because you cannot turn off from Russia overnight without any problem. In the meantime, there are certain things that can be done. Um, there is some floating LNG that can be installed. Uh, that's probably half the time it would take to have full capacities. So these are uh, um, barges, etc., that you can you can bring. And I think within 18 months we'll see more of that. Uh, we'll see also more gas probably coming from Norway uh, and the UK and uh, uh, and uh, Algeria. So Europe will be supplied from a number of places. And finally. Is there enough LNG? It, it's a matter of price, correct? So Europe could attract more LNG because it's willing to pay a higher price uh, than Asia, which means that in a way the European LNG would be replaced by some coal somewhere in Asia to compensate for the lack of gas in Asia. So it's a big system. And as you change the parameters in one side, it's going to change uh, uh, the parameters for other uh, fuels, other prices in another region. Uh, it's a big system and the disruption in Europe is having consequences on oil market on oil markets, on coal markets, everywhere in the world. Yeah, of course. Let's let's move uh, across the pond to the US. And we're seeing that some independent US gas and oil suppliers are prioritizing uh, sending cash back to shareholders rather than accelerating growth. Do, do you think they'll go back to favor growth with the present high prices? Well, they're in the middle of a strategy to prove uh, that they can be a steward of good capital. And that was the story until February, March. Uh, and I think it still matters. These companies burned a lot of cash in the previous cycle, and now they need to return it to investors. So I think that trend will continue. However, uh, two things are happening in the United States that matters in the environment you're working. The first one, let's go back to Russia, that untethering of Europe from Russia in terms of energy means at the same time that the new geopolitics of uh, uh, energy security for Europe is to link itself to American energy to replace some of that Russian oil and gas. So in a way, uh, the US now uh, has, the US system has a new raison d'etre in a way, because it not only needs to supply the US, but it needs to be able to replace part of the Russian volumes into Europe. Uh, yeah. And it creates issues in terms of, uh, obviously, emissions. And when you have an administration which is very much into reducing production to reduce emissions, how these agendas conflict. And I think these agenda did conflict. And the resolution is that energy security is a very important element. And we need the U.S. systems to meet the West demand. And in in exchange, the industry has to clean itself uh, while uh, uh, investing to provide the growth. So I think these are complicated uh, uh, issues that will be resolved largely by higher prices. Higher prices will incentivize to continue drilling. Of course. Well, uh, will they? Um, because uh, it's, no. to me, unclear whether the U.S. will, in fact, step up production, uh, not just to make up for the Russian shortfall, but to make use of the higher prices. Well, I, I think not in 2022, uh, budgets were set, et cetera, et cetera. So, but in 2023, we, we see another 
million, million plus of growth uh, after this year, which will be a little bit less than that. But, you know, over two years, the U.S. would have grown by about two million barrels per day. Uh, th that's uh, significant. We cannot replace Russia. Uh, we can replace part of Russia and at least the volumes that Europe the crude oil volume that Europe imports from Russia are about two and a half million barrels per day. So the, UN, the United States cannot do that alone, and it would need the help of the Middle East producers, most likely uh, including uh, Iranian barrels, potentially. Okay. Well, you, you hinted at climate change considerations uh, a few minutes ago. The IPCC now calls for significant reductions in CO2 emissions by 2030. Is there a danger? that both IOCs and NOCs will be left of sitting with underutilized or, or stranded fossil fuel assets because of those um, uh, reductions? Um, I, I think the values of the asset in the portfolio of all companies, IOCs and NOCs, when you take the carbon constraint in it, uh, changes the, the relative economics. So when you're looking at where oil and gas production is going to grow, you need to look not only where the reserve is, not only where what the cost of productions are, but also on the carbon footprint. And I think that uh, that new constraint re-rank the projects and some projects will not go forward because you can't meet both the economic and the carbon constraints that you have. So I think it's a re-ranking of project rather than uh, an impact on the present asset. It's really going forward. What do you invest in and what does not get invested in because its carbon footprint is not manageable? And I think we're seeing that already. Uh, do, do you invest therefore in nuclear? I mean, long-standing anti-nuclear feeling in Germany was, I remember, galvanized by the 2011 Fukushima disaster. And that led pretty much Berlin to officially abandon nuclear power. Does this crisis change the future on nuclear energy now that several European countries have floated plans to add nuclear reactors? Well, it changes in certain places, not in other. I don't think it will change it in Germany, but it changes it in France, it changes it in the UK. Eastern Europe has been building uh, uh, nuclear plants. And when you think about the European market is one big electron market at the end of the day, how you're feeding the electron into the system matters. Some countries can do it through um, nuclear, some would not, but, you know, the French are willing to sell uh, electricity to their neighbors and Germany is willing to buy nuclear electricity. So uh, they're not willing to, to, to build the plants, but they're, they're willing to buy the electricity, which means that the French will put the, the plants at the border with Germany, correct? Uh, that's how it goes. Um, yeah. But th that's the reality in a way. You need to think about the European energy system becoming a lot more electrified over time, and we're going to use more nuclear, more renewables, and less gas. That's the reality of what we're going to, and this crisis is going to accelerate the transformation, front-loaded in many ways. When you say accelerate, how fast do you think it'll accelerate, or is that just too hard uh, a question? Because no, no, I think speculation. I think it's accelerated in the short term, in the medium term, and in the long term. Uh, the, it, it means that we're going to cut Russian gas much faster than anybody would have even ever contemplated, even any green uh, 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 policymaker, because of that energy security constraint. It means that we're going to need to accelerate 
renewal deployment. It also means that we're going to need to accelerate demand destruction, demand management, uh, more technology, better equipment. It means that we also are going to get a new mix of energies, may maybe more coal in the short term, uh, but more hydrogen in the long term, uh, uh, more solar panels and, and windmills that you, you expect in the next five years. So I think it changed all the horizons because suddenly the trajectory has to be different. Right, it is a seismic change, isn't it? What, what is the economic profile, do you think, of renewable projects for investors? I mean, do the returns justify the very high level of investments we're seeing right now? And, and what are shareholders looking for? Yeah, well, I, I think this issue of return is not easy to answer, correct? So they have lower return, but they have lower risks. So the question is in the portfolio of financial asset, how different assets perform. Clearly, uh, when you look at the last 10 years, oil and gas didn't perform well, and it had a very high level of risk and volatility. So while renewables or, or, or what we would, would call lower, lower return project have performed as expected without the volatility. So it depends what the shareholders want and in a way, when you look at an energy portfolio, it has very different type of asset and financial instruments if you want in it, and you cut it up and shareholders decide what type of risk and return they want. And I think there is a clear space for renewables. There's a lot of demand for this type of paper from big asset manager, pension fund, sovereign wealth fund. So there is demand for that. There is a, a sort of greenium, a premium on green asset that matters because you want to, to reach certain ESG uh, uh, thresholds. So there is the market for it. <clears throat> At the second level, there is also a race. This is the beginning of a race. So you want to take the best assets and position mm -hmm. your, your portfolio in a, in a good place. So the intrinsic value of an asset is not only its immediate return, but its impact on the your future portfolio and how you can manage to create uh, profit centers uh, across a more complex value chain. So I think it fundamentally is changing the way we think about energy business. Uh, what, what, what is for sure is that what we're seeing right now, both for oil and gas, but also for renewables, is a, is a fantastic acceleration of the level of fund available to be invested in. I, I, I can't uh, talk to you without <coughs> mentioning hydrogen, of course, uh, how you see the future of hydrogen, hype or reality? Um, no, I think hydrogen has a good future, but uh, again, hydrogen's future just changed also in front of our eyes because in Europe there was perception that there was a dual strategy of yes. uh, green hydrogen and blue hydrogen. Blue hydrogen being coming from gas and, and green coming from renewable. And I think the gas option just got killed. Uh, Europe is not going to buy gas from somewhere to do hydrogen. It will want to develop a green hydrogen uh, network. I think uh, blue hydrogen is probably more for Asia uh, for, for the time being, but I think hydrogen uh, future just improved uh, uh, again tremendously because of that energy security um, uh, need requirement to that energy transition in Europe. At least in okay. Europe, it improved a lot. Certainly, Ukraine has changed so much as, as fossil fuel usage declines. How does this the big question, the geopolitics of energy evolve? Do you think there will be less focus on the Middle East? Well, the, we're just seeing how the geopolitical of energy is changing. So it changes 
all the time and we're uh, we're in troubled times correct uh the the global architecture is changing what's the role of china in the global economy <clears throat> what's the relationship between china and the us how is russia going to be integrated or disintegrated from the global system how the middle east position itself between these blocks as they emerges do we have these emergence of hard blocks or blocks which are willing to cooperate in terms of uh, <coughs> economic relation all of these things will you're, you're asking as many questions as i am roger I know, but that's the reality of the <laughs> moment is. we're in, correct? I agree. Uh, and all of these things are impacting geopolitical energy as we see it. I mean, we are seeing right now another very big, important shift in the geopolitics of energy, which is that relationship between the US and the Gulf countries. It was perceived to be a clear deal, oil for security, and it looks like it's being negotiated on both sides as we speak. Um, how do we reintegrate Iran into the system? If we reintegrate Iran, what security mean for the Gulf producer? Yeah. What does oil mean for Americans when they're uh, capable of, of growing? So all these questions are were already on the table. And I think uh, Russia uh, adds dimension to it. But again, I think that also will fundamentally change uh, how we thought about oil markets. Uh, is that relation changing in a way that in a way that there's no more spare capacity in the world? We should not be thinking about it that way. But the uh, regulator of prices are not the suppliers anymore, that consortium of suppliers, OPEC plus, OPEC, etc., but the consumers, that it's these strategic stocks which are the marginal barrels that come in and out of the market, not the OPEC barrels. We are at this moment of transition. I mean, uh, the US and, and Europe announced 240 million barrel of uh, SPR released over last uh, over the next six months that more than OPEC is putting incrementally on the market. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is also changing on, uh, under our eyes. And I think these new deals are being negotiated and we'll see where we are. Very interesting. You mentioned Iran. I think it's a complete podcast on its own. But to conclude this interview, I'd like to ask a question that will leave our listeners with plenty to think about. Do you believe CO2 emissions can be controlled so the average world temperature remains below a 1.5 centigrade rise, as intended by the Paris agreements? Look, I, I, I think bending the emission curve uh, at the speed that is required to stay within 1, 1.5 is very difficult. We're bending the curve, and I think this crisis will bend it further in a way. Uh, but I think to stay on to that 1.5, we're going to need more technology uh, and faster deployment of certain technologies. And in particular, I think the, the 1.5 target is not realistic if we don't have a very robust uh, pricing of uh, carbon, a carbon pricing mechanism, which allows CCUS or so carbon capture to be a viable technology. So I think to be able to remove carbon and reduce drastically the emission in, in the short term, you need to have a clear implicit or explicit price of carbon and the, that externality is paid. So actually it's a business to be removing carbon rather than just an externality. In Europe, we do have an, uh, an explicit carbon price and it has helped. Uh, I don't think the US will get there, even if the industry now is for it. Uh, and in Asia, we're early days. So I don't see that yet happening, but I think that's the mechanism that is required to maybe get back to 1.5 rather than uh, not go beyond 1.5. 
That's very fair. Thank you for that. And my thinking is green targets are very much taking second place to ensuring safe and secure energy supplies at the moment. But Roger Dewan, on behalf of the Alatea Foundation, I'd like to thank you so much for providing those expert views and analysis. I'm sure our listeners would be fascinated to hear your perspective. The Foundation very much looks forward to speaking with you again in future. And thank you for listening. Be sure to keep up to date with all of the Alatea Foundation's work by following us on Twitter and YouTube. From me, Stephen Cole, goodbye.